2: Hi there and welcome to the Spike podcast. My name is Ella Whelan, I'm the assistant editor at Spiked and today we look at the royal nuptials with Freddie Gray from The Spectator and our own Tom Slater, Pauline Hadaway keeps us up to date with the news on Ireland and Brexit and you'll hear an excerpt from my interview with author and professor Mark Lilla from this month's Spiked Review. Yes, there's going to be another royal wedding. Are you celebrating? Well, I'm not particularly. As a Republican, it's hard not to get grouchy when royal news dominates the headlines. But there is something interesting in the engagement of Prince Harry and the US actress Meghan Markle. Many have celebrated the fact that Markle is a black, divorced American, bringing diversity to the monarchy. Noam Chomsky has even described the engagement as a shake-up. So, as the royals become more real than regal, are their days numbered? Or, as lots of us Republicans hate to admit, is their life in the crown yet? To discuss this, I decided to go to a monarchist and a Republican. Freddie Gray, the deputy editor of The Spectator, and Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater, talk wedding bells. Right, let's talk the royal wedding. First of all, Tom, can I start with you? As a Republican, what did you make of the engagement?
3: Well, I wasn't necessarily best pleased, as you'd imagine, but one of the things that struck me most and kind of irritated me most was less the kind of fanfare around the usual royal wedding. And it was the strange way in which so many people who would assume to be Republicans or at least critical of the monarchy on some level seemed to be really excited about it. I wrote about it on Spike this week as a kind of strange birth of woke monarchism, insofar as an institution that many people either didn't want much to do with or thought was pretty toxic and ancient and all the rest of it because it was getting this slightly diverse kind of lick of paint Was suddenly very excited about it. And you saw pieces on the front page of the Guardian newspaper talking about how this is a turning point for race in our country that would change things forever and other people who are kind of wondering out loud if this new very diverse millennial couple would lead us out of this kind of dark Brexit morass that we, we are in as a country. So kind of really rehabilitating the idea that the monarchy should kind of lead us by the nose but just in sort of politically correct terms. And what was just really striking about that was again that no one was really recognising that as a bit of a contradiction but also I think it just tells us a little something about identity politics which is in so many ways it just seems to blind people to principle and to issues of class so much so that in this case it actually became a bit of an apology for kind of inherent <laughs> influence and wealth.
2: And Freddie, are you any more upbeat than that?
3: No, no, I, I find the whole thing unbelievably grim. Um, I mean, I thought The
0: Guardian was... They usually have that sort of Republican block, don't they, on royal news, That they, when there's big royal news, that you can sort of block out any sort of monarchy content in case you want to be. But they were, they were none of that. They were absolutely delighted. And I'm not, I hope I'm not a kind of paranoid monarchist, but if I were a paranoid monarchist, I might feel that this is a sort of subversion, you know, in that they think that Meghan will ultimately just destroy the monarchy and that there will be a sort of you know great outpouring a bit like what happened with Diana in the in the 80s of sort of trashing the monarchy basically turning the monarchy into sort of tabloid fodder and that this will be a sort of woke version of that I don't think that's necessarily true but there's certainly an element of the monarchy has to change because it's our democratic will that it changes at the same time it quickly becomes sycophancy and it becomes the worst kind of um, sucking up to people based on who they are.
2: Well, Freddie, you wrote about this a while back about the new kind of youthful share royal style of monarchs we have today, going on chat shows and meeting celebrities and being kind of cool. Do you think that they'll give Buckingham Palace a new lease of life? Or is this what you're talking about the kind of danger to the monarchy as it stands?
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the monarchy probably, you know, how long can we exist in a fiercely democratic age with a monarchy? I don't know. But the, I think Certainly the younger royals have this tendency to emote and to try and have it both ways with their privacy. They want to guard their privacy very fiercely, but they also want to talk about their feelings and, and how they've been through a lot as people. And ultimately that starts grating, you know, and when it's to do with mental health, yes, to a certain extent, it's a good thing that they're trying to raise awareness about a difficult issue. But at the, at the same time, they're just talking about themselves, really. And I think that's not what people want in monarchy. We may feel in the short term, that's what we want because it sort of makes everyone feel warm and fuzzy, but ultimately it sort of degrades the institution. And that's what happened in the eighties with Prince Andrew did a sort of it's a Royal knockabout. It was this crazy sort of fair where he sort of each Royal had a charity and, you know, and then they did these embarrassing competitions and it was really sort of grim and, and, and and naff, I think it's probably the best word, but, but people at the time said, oh, you know, don't be so fuddy-duddy. Uh, you know, the monarchy's adapting for a new age. It's exciting. It's wonderful. And it was really sort of turning monarchy into celebrity. And that has carried on. Monarchy really has been celebrity now for quite a long time. And I think that ultimately degrades it. And it will go in fits and starts. We'll have feelings of pro-monarchy, feelings of anti-monarchy. And I think depending on how Prince Charles handles, handles his his reign, You know,
3: we could see a very strong anti monarchical, you know, Tom could be excited about the future, I think. (laughs) Well, I think that's one of the things is that you kind of see the desperation of a lot of monarchists in many respects, as far as as soon as there's a bit of popularity, as soon as there's a kind of trendy monarch, they get very, very excited about it. But I think, again, it just kind of spells the end in some respects, whether that's going to be a death delayed is another question but it's kind of interesting that um, on spite this week Mick Hume pointed out it's also 150 years since Walter Badgett's English constitution mm-hmm. and one thing that he talks about in that is that the monarchy to kind of retain its, its status and the idea that it should lead has to have some sort of magic to it that there has to have a kind of power that is kind of beyond human origin and when you look at the current royals who are telling you about everything from what they have for breakfast this morning to their struggles with um, mental health and well being that kind of soul bearing doesn't really match up with that but the only thing I guess I think is that it's almost inevitable in some respects because even over the course of say the 20th century you saw the monarchs very much try to repackage themselves as kind of public servants in some respects it was very much about charity it was very much about their service to the nation and in some respects i don't think there's that big of a jump between public servant to public service (laughs) broadcast announcer to someone who's just bearing all in front of the tabloid so i wonder if it's an inevitable process but at the same time i think for as long as there's a lot of skepticism and cynicism about our political class i think they'll still maintain a bit of shine as being the ones who are kind of a step above that, really.
0: I think I totally agree about uh, the, the, the sort of eagerness with which uh, monarchists fall on anything that could be seen as PR. I mean, I don't know if you've seen Meghan Markle's UN speech.
2: Yes, this is what I wanted to ask you about next. It's quite remarkable. UN speech that she made, if I remember rightly, about correcting someone on a soap advert for being sexist. <laughs>
0: it's it's one of the worst speeches I've ever seen. It's it's just awful. Like the worst kind of virtue trumpeting. Um, and the way she's written about her own speech afterwards, saying, you know, <laughs> I was there when Ban Ki-moon led the applause for me and I said, this is what it's all about. And she's clearly a narcissist in, 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 to some extent. I mean, I, you know, i don't want to categorize her too simply i don't know her but you know there's things that monarchists should be worried about as as her as a future figure for the monarchy but then you know you send that to a, send that video to a monarchist as i did this week and say, what do you think about this and they'll say oh come on you know don't be so negative um she's going to change she's going to be. and you know maybe she will but you should be aware of the fact that there is this grim side to her that she's exhibited.
2: Well I mean Freddie it kind of baffles me how the monarchy has survived this long because with the kind of openness with the fact that now there's things like paparazzi and the internet you have things coming to light like I can't believe that everybody's forgotten that Harry dressed up as a Nazi <laughs> or one of my favourite examples of royal faux pas when Prince Philip told a 13 year old that he was too fat to be an astronaut. I mean why do so many people still love the monarchs?
0: The monarchy, the monarchy, sort of has this sort of slightly odd role within celebrity world, where where they are they are seen as superstar dust, but they're 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 slightly separate, and they can they can play this role quite well about being celebrities, but also being a little bit distinct, not like everyone else. And I mean, they're able to do this sort of they're just like us thing, and I think that will that can carry on. I mean, you can reinvent monarchy like that forever. But, I do think that after it there will be tides of resentment towards it, and I think we may be a due tide of resentment.
2: And Tom, with Brexit and now questions about the House of Lords and a kind of upsurge of brilliant democratic feeling in this country, do you think that those in Buckingham Palace might not be sitting too comfortably on their chairs?
3: I think it's always worth pointing out that um, as much as we've seen these kind of democratic ruptures recently, the monarchy remains staggeringly popular as an institution. I mean, I think there's something to be said about when you turn it basically into a kind of more refined version of the Kardashians, then they are going to be subject to the kind of flits of popularity, so who knows how sustainable that is. But nevertheless, it's quite clear that really over the last 20, 30 years, especially as the belief in the political process has kind of plunged. The interest in the or the belief in it, again, is something which is above that kind of messy phrase sort of maintained. So I don't necessarily think it's the case that because there's been a lot of discussion about democracy recently, that people are suddenly ready to get the guillotine out. I think it's more the kind of case that it the role, I think, of a lot of Republicans is to sort of carve out a politics that is capable of giving the nation meaning, because I think until that is the case, and I think the royals will be some kind of receptacle for people's frustrations with grubby, um, distrustful politicians.
2: Okay, so let's try and end on an upbeat and well wishes for the new couple, whether or not we agree with their political position. Freddie, what are your hopes for the soon to be newlyweds? Well, I think it'll be
0: funny, you know, at least it will (laughs) be depressing and funny at the same time uh, as the younger royals sort of feel their way through, you know, being popular and being stars. I I think people tend to, I think the Queen has been a successful Queen because uh, she has kept her mouth shut. For the, for the large part of her reign, in fact, for all of it. But, you know, at the same time, she was hated for a long time uh, because she was so austere and aloof. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think there is any magic formula to monarchy. I just think it's something that will rumble on because of our politics being so hopeless and nobody wants a President Blair, a President Cameron,
3: or even a President May.
2: And Tom, any message from you?
3: I uh, wish them the best of luck. My only hope is that it would be as private citizens who wouldn't deign to represent us without first being voted for but best of luck nonetheless
2: that was freddie gray and tom slater discussing the royal wedding now for our next guest the last two weeks have been full of talk that ireland might threaten brexit if the uk doesn't stay within the single market this is happening alongside a fair amount of fear mongering about the border between the North and the Republic of Ireland. Channel 4 and other TV stations continuously interview people living on the border, talking about how they're worried about whether we're going to be harking back to the bad old days. On top of all of this, Ireland is going through its own political turmoil. Taoiseach Leo Varadkar is trying to deal with the resignation of Deputy Francis Fitzgerald amid scandal mongering from Finna Fall. What's going on in Ireland? Is there any truth behind the threat of a hard border? And what role is the EU playing in all of this? Is it using Ireland as a stick to beat Brexit with? To find out, I spoke to writer and co-founder of the Liverpool Salon, Pauline Hadaway, via Skype. So Pauline, let's start by looking at what's happening within the Irish government itself. Since the resignation of the Deputy Prime Minister Francis Fitzgerald, uh, there's been concern that the Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, will not be able to hold together the coalition government. There's big kind of panic talks. I think he's in emergency meetings at the moment because he depends on the support of not only independent politicians, but of Fianna Fall as well. So could you... Just explain to us what the situation is now, because I know it is changing from day to day.
4: Yeah, I think it's a reminder that, of course, that the Irish government is in a very weak position too. So it's it's a sort of reminder that that you know Ireland has its own internal political crisis. The nature of this row that's erupted or re-erupted. I think is is interesting the wider ramifications are important because it is connected to a a scandal and one of many scandals that's sort of been clouding Irish politics for some time now revelations of emails that showed that Francis Fitzgerald had been involved in this sort of um, really unpleasant um, scandal, an attack on a Garda who had been, it was a whistleblower. And it's, it's a classic sort of contemporary political scandal. The fact that it's sort of being made into a political issue now is interesting because obviously with the uh, the focus on um, Ireland in its role as sort of EU member state involved in Brexit negotiations and the importance of that, it does seem at first rather odd that um, Fianna Foyle would kind of destabilise things by sort of reintroducing this um, scandal. But it, it's worked. And um, although Fitzgerald has stepped down and kind of averted, if you like, dodged the bullet, for the time being, it does suggest that that it's going to reemerge, and there could be an election then on the cards. Which I don't think anyone really wants. No one really wants an election because, in a sense, nobody really wants to win it.
2: And mm, it very much seems that Varadkar doesn't want uh, an election. He's trying to do everything he can at the moment to avoid that. Many have seen him as the kind of softly, softly pro-European sort of peacekeeper. Prime Minister, he was a very kind of uh, beige character um, for many. How has he fared in the job so far? Because he really hasn't been doing this very long.
4: I think his role as a sort of, you know, taking on Britain and, you know, promoting Ireland's interests in the EU has kind of provided a bit of a smokescreen or a a protection for him because actually underneath that, he is regarded, I think, by many... In Ireland, many people certainly, you know, on the left or even the centre left as a pretty hard line, illiberal kind of um very. Un- he was he was very unpleasant in terms of, you know, the cuts and austerity um when he was heading up the Department of Health. And uh, he's also said some really. Callous things about um, homeless people, and he's uh, he's, he's very much a, he's very much though so in the mould, I guess, of the Macron of the sort of technocratic, getting business done, kind of politician that seems to be rising now. You know, his role is to sort of act as a defence against populism.
2: Yes, let's move on to Brexit, the main issue that's gripping Ireland at the moment. There's much talk of the threat of a hard border between the North and the Republic of Ireland. What's going on then? Because that is that not deeply undemocratic?
4: This all depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. And I think that, you know, just to sort of go back and, and, and it does feel sometimes that you're going round in circles, or we have been going round in circles now for most of this year, because of the, the way these negotiations are being conducted. There seems to be it's like being in a maze, really, trying to sort of work your way through it. That you know, it's clear that Brexit creates the necessity. Or a customs and immigration frontier between Ireland and the UK. Everyone's agreed on that. In other words, Brexit means there has to be changes to the political, legal, technical status quo. And I think everyone's agreed on that. And that could be anything from a very radical change. It could be Irish reunification, could be on the cards, who knows? Or just simply a rethink of all the existing relationships. But I think, you know, it represents then... A step towards change whether it be radical or whether we're taking small steps and I think what the nature of those changes will be that is really what should ide- ideally be a matter for serious and wide discussion but I think that what we're saying here is actually not that and I think this is where the democratic question comes in I think what we're saying here and it's really unedifying I think we're seeing how EU consensus building and decision making is done and it's being conducted in public. We're sort of seeing a process of, you know, a kind of policy making machine in action. And I think it's really unpleasant and unproductive and anti-democratic because it really is gambling or trading off different interests, gambling the interests of the broader population or just ignoring them. And it's a sort of very narrow day-to-day pursuit of power, I think, that we're seeing, and an avoidance of really important problems that societies and people face all over, not just in Britain and Ireland, but all over Europe. So I think, in a way, the row over the border, which, you know, and the way it's being conducted, is a, a terrific insight into how it's normally secretive kind of power games go on in the EU.
2: Well, finally then, Pauline, I mean, you could argue that there seems to be a sort of historical amnesia going on, because not so long ago, the EU treated uh, Ireland very badly, very publicly. So um the EU does not have a great name for democracy in Ireland itself. And as you've argued, what's happening is that the EU is putting pressure on ireland to kind of make statements about vetoing brexit to kind of push for the uk to be remain in the single market there's a lot of kind of as you say <laughs> upfront dodgy stuff going on is ireland and is the irish people are they as pro you a country as so many kind of anti-brexiteers want to make out
4: we forget that the way that the Irish people rejected the, you know, EU Lisbon Treaty, and then how they were kind of pressurised because there was a banking crisis, their their economy collapsed, into embracing this. So that their embrace of the EU is in part kind of an unwilling, um, or co- there's a coercive nature to it. And certainly the the troika and the the European Central bank and so on during the bailout crisis. It's very clear that the interests of the Irish people were not served. I mean, they, they picked up the bill for essentially, um, the profligacy of the banks and, and, and they, you know, they, they, they paid that down themselves with their jobs and with their pensions and so on. And that was very much directed by the EU. And so the, the loss of sovereignty, the fact that Ireland was no longer able to make decisions, really serious decisions, um, and that's continued. So there is no love lost. It's a bit like the Varadkar enigma, you know, because there's another dynamic here, which is that the, I think that the Irish estate and establishment is really playing up. The, the sort of anti-British sentiment, which, which is really obviously part of the Irish experience, you know, a sort of resentment towards Britain because of the history. And I think they're really playing up on that in the same way that they're kind of playing around with in the North. They're sort of stirring up the the sectarian question is being stirred up. It's almost like after the referendum, there was an attempt to kind of stir up racial tension in Britain as a way of kind of undermining or destabilizing things and actually casting your opponents in a very bad light. So I think that's kind of politicizing and playing politics, I should say, is really very much what's happening now. I mean, the other thing I think in terms of the amnesia is, you know, the Borders, Citizenship and Immigration Act of 2009, which is actually the former, the Labour Party, the Labour government um, brought in, actually formalized a kind of cooperation between Ireland and the UK and introduced this idea that actually you would have to show identification at the border. They they put that forward in the 2009 Border Citizenship and Immigration Act. And I think people just forget that the, the Good Friday Agreement did not solve any of these questions. In fact, it left a whole lot of unanswered questions. And that The UK and Irish government, their modus operandi is to cooperate, to try and fill in the little loopholes and work together on this. What we're seeing now is a breakdown in a relationship which was based on cooperation and finding technical solutions to loopholes. And we're seeing it break down. We're seeing it become highly politicized. And this is what's new. The cooperation is not new the introducing immigration controls and policing this so-called invisible border is not new that's been going on and is still going on including checkpoints at borders I mean there are people know this that there are guardy checkpoints there are often customs checkpoints where the cars are dip fuel tanks are dipped for fuel smuggling and people are illegal immigrants are lifted at the border and so on this is this is actually part and parcel of the management of the border. I think what's new is that the governments who like to smooth this over and not draw attention to it are now making it into a political issue and stirring things up. That's the question that uh, interests me.
2: That was Pauline Hadaway on the Irish Brexit question. Now for our final guest. The following interview is an extract from this month's Spiked Review. The issue is themed around identity politics, a hot topic at the moment, and a big problem if, like Spike, you believe that it's what you say that counts, not what you look like or where you were born. And who better to talk identity politics with than Mark Lilla, professor at Columbia and author of The Once and Future Liberal. Mark wrote an article for the New York Times last year, criticising the rise of identity politics and calling for a new post-identity movement centred around commonality and actually winning elections in the US. Sound reasonable? Well, many didn't think so. Since publishing, Mark has been called a bigot, a white supremacist and much more. Has that stopped him? Not at all. Some of you might remember that Mark recently challenged censorious students at Spike's Unsafe Space Tour in the US at Rutgers University in New Jersey.
1: It's not about you. It's not about me and how I define myself. It's about a fight out there. So let's just grow up and start fighting
2: so what is the problem with identity politics as mark sees it and what is his dream of a once and future liberal i gave mark a call to find out well first of all mark i just wanted to start way back when you wrote your original critique of identity politics did you expect it to touch such a nerve back then
1: um well you know it's the sort of thing I, i wrote this uh in the original article in two afternoons in the first week after the um, after the uh, election of Donald Trump, and I just needed to get it off my chest. And I expected there to be some reaction against, you know, j- just from people who were totally committed to identity politics, but I was not expecting really the tsunami of response. The piece was the most read political uh, commentary piece in the New York Times of 2016. And I got my first Twitter bath uh, all in acid and realized just how uh, difficult it is to even raise the question that I raised. And because uh, the response I got uh, was so unfocused and certainly not focused on how we, we need to win in the future, that is what inspired me to actually turn it into a book. It's been depressing in a way, I mean, not depressing because you're criticized, it's because the indifference that I've felt from the activist class on the liberal democratic side to winning, the indifference to winning and understanding that the only way, for example, to protect a woman who needs an abortion in Texas or a black motorists in Oklahoma is to win elections in those places. And uh, there seems to be indifference to that. Um, And I've just discovered just how symbolic and self-reinforcing the politics of uh, the identity movements are and the degree to which they're just in the way for building a democratic majority in the country again.
2: And I advise everyone who hasn't already to read The Once and Future Liberal, but for those uh, who are listening today who haven't, what do you think is the main problem, uh, if you can summarize it neatly, with identity politics? Why did you take such issue with it at this particular time after the election of Donald Trump?
1: Well, there are really two styles of identity politics. I mean, there's an old identity politics, which is really just a kind of interest politics. And when you think of the civil rights movement or the early feminist movement or early gay rights movement, those were, those movements were ways of mobilizing people who shared a common interest to fight for their interests within our political institutions. And so it was focused on making gains within our institutions in a durable way. Then what has progressively changed you know, from the 80s down to the present is that. Identity politics became focused on the identity of the individual self rather than a shared characteristic and how we might, you know, pursue a common agenda together. And identity politics in, the, in this country became much more about uh, self-expression, self-assertion, self-discovery. And so the horizon really of young people who've grown up in this atmosphere, their political horizon is limited by issues touching on the way they happen to define their identity, which is no longer just one thing, but is a mix of things, a gender identity mixed with race and so on. And uh, so it's led to a kind of narcissistic turn within and both an indifference and an incomprehension of the realities of achieving anything in the long-term politically. And it's that turn within and the kind of radicalization that comes with it. It's led to a kind of very subjectivized politics because if, if I have a political aim and a political position on some issue, I can argue with someone about that. My commitment is to my argument and to my principles. But if my politics comes out of the way in which I define myself in an intimate way and the way I understand my subjective experience, I'm not going to be very interested in engaging with people who are critical. I'm going to be highly sensitive and feel that my very self is being challenged rather than my arguments or my politics. And as soon as that happens, people become impervious, not only turn away from practical politics, but also become intolerant when it comes to political debate. And that's one of the reasons why you see the kind of uh, hysterical reaction to political debate and attempts to shut down people and the concerns about safe spaces and all the rest in American universities because of this subjective turn within.
2: A lot of the critics of identity politics today, many of them tend to be sort of right-leaning certainly in America, but they kind of You hear this term snowflake. So, the idea that there's a new generation of young people who are extremely intolerant, uh, who are obsessed with identity politics, to a certain extent, uh, that has some truth in it. But do you think that it's as simple as just a new generational thing, or has this shift from, as you say, politics that's interested in, you know, commonality and identity to an obsession with identity politics, has that been building? for a long time, and it's not just a kind of bunch of uh, crazy young students as it sometimes gets stereotyped as today.
1: Yeah, no, I I think it it really has been building since the 1980s. Even in our educational system, from a very early age, kids are taught about their identities. For example, in New York State, the state puts out suggested, not guidelines, but really curricula for various programs for schools that want to have a kind of set program in different subjects from elementary school on. And I was looking at one of these a while ago. And one of the suggestions is beginning in kindergarten, that children start keeping a diary uh, about their identity from the age of six. And every year they add things to it. And this becomes a kind of Chat book or something that they keep as they discover different aspects of their identity and their ethnic background. And later I imagine gender things and so on. And so, you know, you look at, you look at American movies, you look at the way American corporations deal with diversity issues right now. And all of that, all the signals in the culture are that one that we have identities that uh, Identity as this kind of secret self within this little homunculus—that's your true self—that's made up of all these attachments that you can uh, uh, gain or drop as as you like—and that um, they have to be; those identities have to be protected and cultivated and not uh, not offended. And that's not a that's not a psychological model that opens people up to public debate about issues and also about issues that don't necessarily have anything to do with them personally. Uh, For example, there's very little interest in young people I find in foreign policy because it doesn't have anything to do with their identity.
2: I have this feeling a lot and I don't know whether you feel it as well and especially in response to your book which has had a lot of criticism and the, the critics of critics of identity politics um, do tend to be on the left. And there is a kind of a stereotyping of everybody who is critical or anti-identity politics is a right winger, is anti-liberal, um, is behind the times, and everybody who thinks that these identity politics style groups whether that be contemporary radical feminists or black lives matter transgender politics lobby uh, that that they are of the left that they are progressive that they are right does that kind of framing of right versus left in relation to this criticism of identity politics that you've cultivated kind of irk you as somebody who is a you know self-professed liberal
1: Yes, well, it irks me. I mean, certainly it irks me. Uh, right after my article was published in the New York Times, three or four days after, uh, someone else who teaches at Columbia University, I've never met her, teaches in the law school and teaches about uh, LGBT stuff, uh, wrote an article in the Los Angeles Review of Books comparing me to David Duke, who was the head of the Ku Klux Klan, saying that we are both white supremacists. We, were, we may wear different clothing but we're working towards the same end. You know? And uh, I guess every time I'm charged with being a white supremacist, my response is, I know too many white people to be a white supremacist. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I have no illusions about the superiority of white race. Um, but, but more than that, it, it's just, uh, you know, I just find it very distressing uh, for my political side that if these are the things people care about, we are just making breakfast in bed for steve bannon every single day the indifference to that fact it throws me into despair
2: and finally then mark what do you mean by a future liberal do you hope to see a revival of a kind of classical notion of the liberal subject a universal rights bearing individual or is it something different to that
1: well f- for me no, it's a kind of civic liberalism uh, a kind of liberalism that Is based on the notion that we are all citizens, and as citizens, not only do we deserve certain things, but we also have duties to other fellow citizens, and it's a civic duty. And you know, the term in the individualization, the atomization of our societies, and the uh, individualization of our political rhetoric—the whole word, uh, the whole concept of duty—has dropped out. That you might have obligations, not just rights. In your society and so you know i if if i do another book i I would want to focus on articulating what it means to be a democratic citizen and uh what is implied by the fact that we govern ourselves and what that requires of us and what that means we get And I think out of that, one can begin at that point and then try to articulate political programs, but based on the notion that we are a republic, we are not a parking lot, we are not a campsite, we are not just a collection of elementary particles, that we are a corporate body, and that means we have certain obligations towards each other. We're going to share a common future and a common destiny, and we can work towards that together.
2: If you want to read the full interview with Mark Liller and more brilliant essays, interviews and reviews in this month's issue on identity politics, head to spiked-online.com forward slash spiked-review. You have been listening to the Spike podcast and to get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com, subscribe to our podcast feed, follow us on SoundCloud, on Facebook, on Twitter and share this podcast if you liked it. And if you'd like to help us continue to thrive, please be sure to make a donation.